electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Tonight on Last Call, Mr. Bezos, apparently we have a problem. Blue Origin suffering a rocket engine explosion. What could that mean for the space race? Caught red-handed, Bank of America facing some eye-opening accusations of customer abuse. A Wall Street showdown over Bitcoin heating up. The CEO of crypto heavyweight Grayscale is here. Plus, a new push on Capitol Hill to cut the impact of foreign money donations ahead of the election next year. One of the lawmakers leading the charge will be here. And what exactly is the psychology of a sale? Amazon Prime Day in full force. Why do so many of us get hypnotized by the lure of a good deal? We will dive into that and much more over the hour. So belly up or buckle up. His last call is up right now. All right, good evening here and good afternoon as always out west. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us. We're going to get to all those stories shortly. But first up, this year's stock gains, they have come as a surprise, no doubt, to a lot of investors. You know who you are. It's because so many big-name Wall Street strategists were pretty downcast or just kind of sanguine heading into the year. In fact, coming into 23, the average price target for the S&P 500 of all the big bank strategists was right around 4,000. You had a low estimate of 3,725 at Barclays. The high estimate was Sam Stovall of CFRA with a 4575 target. Pessimism was pretty rampant, even with some of the biggest names on Wall Street. Well, for me, as a, as a hedge fund manager, I'm going to lean uh, short. The stock market, frankly, is exhibiting signs of a mania where you have a very concentrated part of the market that is driving the entire train. I think we do have this period where we're going to go into a recession. How deep it is is going to be dependent upon how quickly the Fed starts to cut interest rates. So bottom line, and respectfully, many of the biggest names on Wall Street simply got it wrong, but not everybody. Carson Group's Ryan Dietrich was pretty bullish to begin the year, saying that stocks should rise about 12 to 15%. Now, as of now, the S&P 500 is up. 15%. Nice work, Ryan. But here's the rub. You probably don't care about what has happened as much as what's going to happen. Now, of course, that is anybody's guess. But Dietrich does point out something, dare we say, random but interesting. Many of those same strategists are still pretty negative for the rest of the year. Now, there have only been four times, according to Dietrich, in recent memory, where strategists were negative on the second half of the year. In other words, expecting stocks to fall through December 31st. Dietrich says it happened in 1999, 2019, 2020, and yep, 2021. But guess what? In each of those years, stocks, the S&P 500, actually kept going higher through the end of the year, jumping 7% in 99, almost 10% in 19, 21% in 20, and an 11% jump in 2021 for an average run of just over 12% in the final six months of the year. 
very good for investors who stuck with it, maybe bad for long-term confidence. Either way, we do have a six months left of the year. Still a lot of time for stocks to tank. Let's hope they don't, and that the bulk of Wall Street simply gets it wrong again. Let's dive a little more into this, bring in our friend, Empire Financial Senior Editor, Heath Greenberg. He's been negative since 1942. And Chief Market Strategist for StoneX, Catherine Rooney Vera. Thank you very much for joining us, Herb. You know, I love you. You're, you're one of the world's most famous pessimists. But why do you think so many of these big name strategists got it wrong? Never mind, by the way, that I have two model portfolios that are 100% long. But we won't go there. I think they got it wrong because... What do I like to say? I like to say this is the craziest market since the last craziest market. They got it wrong because this is a market that sort of defies logic, right? I mean, think about it, Brian. And we've been over all of these things. Follow the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. Rates go up. That's not good. Uh, Markets hate uncertainty. We've been about to have a recession for at least a year, maybe even more. Uh, The earnings season, every earnings season, we're we're almost, we know there's going to be a problem. No one expected the AI bubble. I would go so far as to say, we talk about FOMO, fear of missing out. It's as if the memories of what just happened never happened. Forget about FOMO, Catherine. I'm going to throw out something else called FOBLO or FOBLO, which is fear of being left out. And I do wonder, because so many firms got it wrong, that everyone's kind of running the other way now. Yeah, I think you're right, Brian. And there's another one that, that, that we didn't mention, Herb and Brian, and that's Tina. And there is no alternative has, is kind of etched into people's minds as it correctly should have been, because we've been conditioned over the past 10 years to believe that even if there is a correction, it's the time to get in. One other statistics I'd add to your introduction, Brian, is that since the 1950s, after peak inflation, historically, you get a double-digit return in the equity market. Since the October lows, the S&P is up, what, 20%? Mm. And from the peak in June of last year, where we had, had inflation of 9%, the S&P is up 15 So one has to ask themselves, how much more upside versus what is the risk to, risk to downside from here when we've had 500 basis points in Fed tightening over that one-year time frame? And we have a labor market that is starting slowly but surely to show a rollover. Well, here's the thing, Herb, and I'll kind of agree with the pessimists out there in one form, which is that, yes, the, quote, S&P, and I'm doing air quotes, S&P 500 is up to Catherine's point from last fall. But is it really? There's like seven to ten stocks that are up. A lot of stocks are down Or flat, and because you got these gigantic names, we know who they are, the Magnificent Seven or whatever you want to call them, they're pulling everybody else up that hill. And I do wonder, because listen, if you own the S&P 500 index fund, you you don't care. You're still making money. But I do wonder if it's too little for too much. I don't know. Well, what we know is this market hangs on every last headline. You know, last Thursday, uh, everyone was fretting that, oh, my gosh, the Fed's going to raise rates. And then come Friday... The latest economic news was different. The jobs report was different. So you have a market that absolutely has no conviction. And in that market, anything is possible. You ha- you can't get complacent. I want to go back on one thing Catherine said. She talked about there is no alternative or Tina. And I will say, you talk to people like me, one of the other, al- there is an alternative. And the alternative just isn't as, as sexy because many of us go every day. We'll see, well, gee, what are treasuries at today? You know, short-term treasuries, three months, you know, six months. 
and you're getting a decent return. And so you can just avoid all of this. It's not exciting. But a lot yes. of people do that as well. And by the way, we also have the computers and we have algorithms that many of us just don't understand that actually are driving part of this market. And I think that's been the case for a long time. But right now in this market, you know, it's probably the tail wagging the dog. Well, I'm a coward, Catherine. 5% risk-free money sounds pretty interesting to me. Do you have a view on the remaining six months? You think the, the gains have been made? Because to Dietrich's point, that stat that we ran at the top was basically like when we have these kind of gains and when people are still negative, four out of four times in the past 30 or whatever years, the market has continued to go higher the rest of the year. Right. And Tina's out the window. And that, that was my point. We do have fantastic alternatives. Look at T-bills. You have T-bills, high-grade paper and, and equity dividend or earnings yield yielding within 50 basis points of each other. So cash looks pretty attractive right now. And what I would say to investors, Brian, is, look, we've had this mega rally with the breadth being very narrow. You can play tactically that short-term momentum trade and play the laggards, which is small caps with that massive diversions versus NASDAQ, it includes energy, it includes financials, materials, the laggard trade. But if you have a 12 to 18 month horizon, my perspective is the next phase of the economic cycle is recession. Yes, we got the timing wrong. Timing is really very difficult to be precise with. But I would say now is the time to be counter cyclical in your investment strategy. Maybe unwind some of those high flyers and add yeah. more defensive positionings. Citigroup just downgraded the United States and said Europe may present a better opportunity. Time certainly will tell. It's been a heck of a first year to the thing. I got two hotels on Baltic. Uh, I want to sell you. Herb Greenberg, Catherine Rudy Vera, <laughs> thank you both very much. All right, inside the market, let's get to the studs and the duds of the day. The biggest winner of the day was Sharpie and Rubbermaid owner Newell Brands up 11%. One Wall Street firm saying better days are ahead after what they called an ugly start to the year, and it was. The biggest decliner, VeriSign, down 5%. They got a target price and a rating cut. All right, we have got a lot more to do here on Last Call. And coming up, a rocket explosion rocking Blue Origin. That's next. Plus, PGA Tour officials and Congress teeing it up in D.C. Will anything be done? Can it be done? The spike the live golf deal. Stick around. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. All right, welcome back. Time now for tomorrow's news tonight, and we're going to kick off with Kim Kardashian, because why not? Kardashian in talks to buy back a minority stake in her beauty company from Cody, that according to the Wall Street Journal. 
Sale price has not reportedly been reached and a deal may not happen. Now, back when Cody bought a 20% stake three years ago, Skin by Kim was valued at $1 billion. It's where we get all of our toner and eye cream, of course. All right, next up, Disney and a major deal could be in the works. They're exploring strategic options for Star India. That, according to the Wall Street Journal, again, that includes possibilities for a joint venture, maybe a sale. Star India is the biggest TV and entertainment, net, entertainment network in, you guessed it, India, and it is considered a crown jewel and was when Disney bought a majority of the assets from Fox back in 2019, but its fortune to have turned south. More recently, Disney shares largely unchanged after hours. All right, and finally, maybe some bad news for Jeff Bezos' space company called Blue Origin. A rocket engine exploded during the testing last month, a Blue Origin spokesperson said. Thankfully, nobody was hurt, and an investigation was underway. But what do we know, and why maybe this even a bigger deal than it seems? Bring in CBC's space reporter, Michael Sheets. All right, Michael, what exactly do we know? There's no video. I know it's kind of secretive. What do we know, and why is this maybe a bigger deal than the headline suggests? Good evening, Brian. And it really is all about Blue Origin's powerful B4 rocket engine. This engine test stand actually exploded during a recent test on June 30th, which sources I spoke to described as a dramatic fashion. Now, the important is there any other way for a rocket to blow up that's not dramatic? Sometimes they kind of fizzle out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Okay. (laughs) But but this one, the specific engine was for Blue Origin's customer, United Launch Alliance, or ULA. ULA needs these engines to compete with its Vulcan rocket against SpaceX. So you have this long, you know, kind of tail of downwind of kind of understanding what the implications are here because ULA has already been waiting years for these BE4 engines to get delivered to so they can start launching. And this was supposed to go up next year, probably. So this means not only obvious sound, sound, I don't want to speculate, sounds like another delay for this United Launch Alliance. And maybe a lack of confidence for them. They're going after SpaceX. They're thinking, yo, Blue Origin, like, can you give us an engine that does not, you know, blow up? And and both Blue Origin and ULA have each their own rockets that are powered by the same BE-4 engine. So you have two companies and they're two rockets, both going after lucrative, like we're talking billions of dollars of launch contracts from the Space Force. And they, at the center of it all, is this engine that's not running smoothly. How how big? We're showing rockets. I'm sure they're Blue Origin rockets. What's the scale of this of this engine? Uh, the, the engine itself is well bigger than this desk in width, and it's probably about nine feet tall. So it's a big, they're, big they're I mean, huge. this is their yeah. carry a lot of cargo or maybe someday people up there. You're sending like school bus size satellites with a uh, with a rocket this size. And that's the kind of development that they need to see out of this engine. But if it's not working, then they can't be flying. Yeah. Big setback. You need the engine certainly out there in the what is it? The, West Texas desert, correct? West Texas is where they test them, and uh, Florida is where they launch them. All right, Michael, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, in the meantime, senators grilled two PGA Tour officials over the proposed deal with the Saudi-backed Live Golf. On the hot seats, PGA Tour COO Ron Price and board member and Wall Street bigwig Jimmy Dunn. Price told lawmakers that the deal would not move forward unless the PGA Tour is in complete control of the new entity. However... Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut pushed back on the tour executive, saying the deal would likely inherently give control to Saudi Arabia and it's rather unlimited money. There is something that stinks about this path that you're on right now, because it is a surrender. 
and it is all about the money, and that's the reason for the backlash that you've seen, Mr. Price. So will lawmakers and regulators actually end up spiking the deal or trying to? And even if they wanted to, could they? Let's talk about it with Abe Madcor. He is the publisher and executive editor of the Sports Business Journal. Abe, good to have you on. This uh, A lot of heat. Not sure there's a lot of light. Does Congress right. even have any power to do anything here? I don't think they have much power to do much, Brian. I think, you're, to your point, it was very much a show, which is generally the case when Congress does things like this in the sports space. There were a lot of dramatics. But at the end of the day, I don't think, to your point, they will spike this deal. I don't know if you're a car racing fan. I am. But a lot of people out there may remember about 20 or 30 years ago, IndyCar, which by that time was bigger than NASCAR, mm-hmm. Split in half. One rich owner's like, I'm going over here. He took half the drivers this way. The other half went that way. One plus one ended equaled like negative one. They ended up coming back together, but weaker. If a deal is not done, is the PGA Tour damaged? I mean, can they both succeed or is the PGA Tour the one that's going to bear the brunt of the negative outcome here because of the money issue? I think. Yeah, Brian, it's a great point. I think you heard today from both Jimmy Dunn and Ron Price that they felt that they were up against a um, almost insurmountable force with the Saudi public investment fund. Jimmy Dunn kept saying if they take four or five of our players every year over to live golf, sooner or later, we won't have a tour. And so you said earlier, it's about the money. This was about the money. I think today was pretty clear that the PGA Tour made this framework of an agreement because of the investment, which was said to be north of easily north of a billion dollars into this new global golf. I I, I am. And you are the sports business journal. So help me out here. I'm a little confused. I I get the whole play on the money, but I don't understand why the PGA tours and would be in such dire straits. Players, listen, they come and go. I understand a lot of great players went to live golf. But is it the idea, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Abe, that if you had a number of these players, Dustin Johnson, Phil Mickelson, whatever, playing with Liv, that ultimately tour, tournament, and even TV revenues would drop? Is that why the PGA Tour would be in a bind? That's what I took from Jimmy Dunn today, yeah. Brian, and that they would continue to take some of their best players because of their unlimited funds and what they'd be able to offer and guarantees to these players to eventually go to live golf. And I do think you saw a tour with the PGA Tour that is really trying to appeal to a younger fan base, trying to increase their ratings, and they saw this as a real viable threat, and so they rather be in business with them than go up against them and the legal uh, fees and the, I would say, bottomless wealth of the Saudi PIF. Yeah, I mean, you don't want the PGA Tour to go under literally because of lawyer costs, and and maybe that could happen. We're going to see what ends up happening. Abe Madcor, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Brian. All right, of course. All right, by the way, speaking of sports and money, amazing how this happens. A quick programming note. On July 25th in L.A., CNBC and Boardroom host Game Plan. That is a high-powered event bringing some of the most influential leaders across the sports landscape, including athletes, owners, investors, and you can learn a lot more and maybe attend at cnbcevents.com slash game plan. All right, still ahead. Do you bank at Bank of America? If so, listen up. They may have to send you money soon because they did some bad things. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. 
It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. All right, welcome back to Last Call. I'm Brian Sullivan. All right, listen up. The second biggest bank in America has been caught, in some cases, kind of ripping off customers. Bank of America will be paying out $250 million for reportedly years of bad banking behavior. It includes things like charging bogus fees and even creating fake accounts. The payout will be a $150 million fine, plus some $100 million more paid back to customers. Spokesperson for Bank of America told CNBC that it, quote, voluntarily reduced overdraft fees and eliminated all non-sufficient fund fees in the first half of 2022. Whatever that means. Anyway, this sounds a lot like what happened with Wells Fargo not that long ago. So how exactly did this happen again? Joining us now for more on the situation, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau Director Rohit Chopra. Rohit, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, How did this happen and, and what exactly happened? Well, our investigation uncovered widespread and illegal practices across Bank of America withholding promise, credit card rewards, opening fake accounts, and even double dipping on fees, charging customers a fee over and over again for the same transaction when they overdraw. We're really worried that consumers across the country are facing a lot of these illegal junk fees and have taken a series of actions to hold some of the biggest banks accountable. Wells Fargo, Rohit, Wells Fargo did a lot of this stuff allegedly a number of years ago. Man, CEOs got whacked. People got fired. They got fined. How did it happen again? Well, what we have found in a number of financial institutions is a pressure cooker environment when it comes to sales goals, squeezing some of the employees to make sure they hit those targets. So Bank of America will be ceasing some of those sales goals and incentives, but we also have to make sure that some of these very large banks are not too big to manage. So we're looking hard across the banking sector to figure out how to rid the industry of some of these illegal practices. Do you think somebody or more than one person should be fired at Bank of America? Well, I don't want to comment specifically on that, but look, we can't have a situation where large firms pay fines in a rinse-repeat cycle. We need to make sure that individuals who help create that environment or made the calls are also held accountable. The CFPB, other regulators are focusing much more on repeat offenders, looking more at the individuals and also structural reforms beyond fines to stop it from happening over and over again. You know, these large banks are so important to the lives of customers and the nation. And they've got to follow the law. You think there's more out there? I mean, there's now been two. Wells Fargo, Bank of America, you turn the light on, things scatter. 
Well, we also uh, finalized actions against U.S. Bank and others when it comes to fake accounts. This is also Bank of America's third major enforcement action in the last year and a half. And so we will continue to scrutinize these large players carefully. And I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing new and different types of remedies that we seek mm. to make sure that we can rein in these repeat offenses. Rohit Chopra of the CFPB. Rohit, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. All right. Still ahead, and all you crypto fans, you're going to tune into this. A Wall Street brawl over what could be the future of Bitcoin investing may just be getting started. The CEO of crypto heavyweight Grayscale will join us live on set next. Welcome back. Many of you may want to invest in Bitcoin, but maybe you're nervous to do it directly or maybe you just don't understand it enough to be comfortable. It is why many are pressing for a Bitcoin ETF, one that you could buy kind of just like a stock. But it's been a long, slow road. Now, Coinbase did pop today and hope that regulators like the SEC will approve a Bitcoin ETF soon. But Grayscale still waiting as it tries to market a fund even though a potentially more volatile product than an ETF is already on the market. So what exactly is the holdup in Washington? And what does this all mean for Bitcoin and crypto generally? Let us ask Grayscale CEO Michael Sonnenschein. Nice enough to schlep it out here to the wilds of New Jersey. Michael, thanks for joining us. Um, Been dealing with the SEC for a long time, talking about them for 25 years or so. This is like a turtle with a procrastination problem. Why is this taking so long? And is the United States at risk of losing crypto leadership to the Dubais and Singapores of the world if we don't get moving? Well, I think we got to zoom out. A lot of progress has actually been made, right? When you think about a company like Grayscale, we launched our products as private placements. They made their way to the public market and eventually actually became SEC reporting companies. And I think that's really set against the backdrop of investors not waiting for additional regulatory clarity, although they want and deserve it, and investors really wanting more access points to crypto. So here in the U.S., you have a couple of different drafts passing across the floor of Congress. I do think you will see some bills passing within this Congress. But you're right, there are crypto companies and there are investors who are looking at other jurisdictions around the world who have put out on their front foot that they want to be a crypto hub, a a hub of innovation, and attracting some of these crypto businesses to them. Do you feel like your company, maybe through net asset value, whatever, is being held back by the sort of slothiness of what's happening in D.C.? Well, you got a lawsuit going on right now. We do. We do. And so for viewers who don't know, we're suing the SEC now to challenge a decision that they made to deny our GBTC fund from converting into an ETF. And so if we're successful in that challenge, there's actually billions of dollars of investor capital that would be unlocked through that. So a lot of conviction there. And of course, our number well, one Why priority. does that matter so much for you and others to have that ETF structure? In plain English to our audience, they're maybe a little confused, having a cocktail right now. Why does it matter? Well, the ETF wrapper is tried and true, and it's become the vehicle, the access point for so many different assets, whether they're commodities or stocks or 
you know, really any vehicle that, that you know. Buy it through point. Schwab, whatever you, do, whatever you want. Exactly. And it could be for an individual commodity. It could be for a theme. It could be for an entire market like the S&P 500. And Bitcoin is an asset that's not going away. Investors want and deserve access to it. And so to be able to give investors Bitcoin exposure through GBTC like we do today has been an unbelievable milestone. It's paved the way for a lot of investors to get access to Bitcoin and is actually now paving the way for other financial incumbents to bring their products to market as well, modeled after GBTC. But moving to an ETF structure will give investors that additional protection that they want and deserve. When your parents start listening to the same music as their teenagers, you know it's uncool automatically. And I do wonder, you get, you get BlackRock with Larry Fink coming in on Bitcoin, you know, obviously just, you know, gigantic, one of the world's most successful companies. And I know, I'm sure it's a huge win, but is there also kind of a loss of cool factor when you got a BlackRock who's like, let's do this, let's do that. And you're like, thanks, Dad. No, it's a moment of validation, right? The, the crypto industry has been resilient. This is the third crypto winter I personally and Grayscale has weathered through. And to see literally the largest asset manager in the world publicly commit to advancing their crypto efforts only lends to the validity of the asset class and the staying power that it has. Crypto generally, obviously, it's had, don't quote me on the number, I think it's had 10, 80% drawdowns in its history. I mean, if you're going to invest in crypto, whether it's through Grayscale, directly through the ETF, whatever it is, do you have to be a, a different kind of investor? Because, I mean, it's, it's been, like, there's been 70 and 80% drawdowns Pretty, pretty regularly. Sure. So crypto is now a little bit over a decade into its existence. We have seen drawdowns of large magnitude like that. But we do see over time this continued kind of forming of a bubble. It kind of corrects bases and goes on to form kind of a new trend in the market. That being said, what we hear from investors is that crypto and their Bitcoin allocation is something over the medium to longer term. It's not a short-term trade for them. It's actually becoming a core component of building a more diversified portfolio. I've heard that before. Michael Sonnenschein, thank you very much. Building a diversified portfolio used to be stocks and bonds. Now it's stocks, bonds, crypto, probably some art, some real estate in there as well. Indeed, indeed. Thank you for having me. No, Michael, thanks for coming out here. Really, And keep us up to date on the, uh, the case and good luck. Thank you. Thank you. All right, coming up, are you worried about foreign money trying to influence next year's elections? A lot of people are, and so is Congress. And one of the leaders of the movement to try to fix it will join us next. Plus, America's top states for business is out, and there's a bit of a shocker among what used to be one of the high flyers. Scott Cohn is standing by to kind of make sense of it all. Scott. We'll try, Brian. This is the top state for business, North Carolina. We're at the historic Biltmore Estate. We named that this morning, second year in a row for them. But yes, there's change this year. A state that has been a fixture in our rankings since we started them is no longer a top state. We'll tell you why when Last Call continues. All right, welcome back. Time now for the last call. Watch list. Shares of Roku saw big gains today, finishing up more than 11%. That on news that Roku viewers will be able to buy stuff off Shopify with the simple click of a remote during an ad. Wow. Shopify shares also up more than 2% on news of the click-to-buy partnership. That has helped, by the way, the big holder, one of the big holders of Roku, 
and Shopify, and that is Kathy Wood's ARC. It rose today. Next up, a major hurdle cleared for Activision and Microsoft to get together. A U.S. federal judge ruled in favor of the companies and Microsoft's planned $69 billion buy of the video game company. The government can still appeal the decision. And finally, and listen up if you are on some of these weight loss drugs. While the European Union is still probing whether weight loss drugs can pose higher risks of suicide, Another report shows that people may be dumping the drugs. Reuters reports that most people ditch weight loss drugs within a year of being prescribed. According to Reuters, only one third of patients were still taking the drugs after a year. Maybe they've, hey, lost all the weight, or maybe they simply could no longer afford it. Either way, Lily and Nova Nordisk down on that. All right, now to our annual tradition of naming the best states in all of America for business. Now, if you've been watching all day, and we hope you have, you know that North Carolina came in at number one, and while that may not be a surprise, this may be. Perennial frontrunner Texas fell out of the top five. Scott Cohn joining us now live from the winning state in some rich guy's old mansion in the mountains of western <laughs> North Carolina, I presume. That is correct. You, you recognized it, Brian. It's the historic Biltmore Estate. Um, with 250 rooms and what do they say? 43 bathrooms. So, so there is that. Uh, North Carolina is America's top state for business, uh, followed by Virginia, Tennessee, Georgia, and Minnesota. If there is something that you see missing there, yeah, that is because Texas this year is not in the top five. Number six, Texas is still a powerhouse, America's second best economy, and for the first time tying California for best access to capital. But the Lone Star State is stressed. Good evening and welcome. These are desperate hours for millions in Texas. The state dropping to 24th for infrastructure with its challenged power grid and 35th for education with low test scores. The state does finish second for workforce, but some are leaving, like science writer Camille Ray and her bioscientist husband, who moved to Maryland to protect their transgender son. We needed to leave Texas because it was not a safe place for us. It was not a place where Leon could be himself. Texas drops to last place for life, health, and inclusion, not just because of its crackdown on LGBTQ rights and its abortion ban, my body, my but also high crime and poor health care. But for every family like the Rays, there's Siobhan and Quentin Bonner. She's a nurse. He just finished 11 years in the military. Originally from Chicago, they could have moved anywhere. They chose Fort Worth. I'm looking at the economical factors like no state taxes, extremely veteran-friendly, um, a lot to do for with our kids. We have two daughters. They like the conservative values, but they say there's room here for everyone. I feel like everybody is welcome in Texas, and if you feel like your beliefs or your lifestyle, you know, isn't adequate to what Texans believe, then maybe you can be the change. Late, late today, we got a statement from uh, Governor Greg Abbott's spokesperson saying that people and businesses vote with their feet and continually they are choosing to move to Texas more than any other state in the country. Texas is the economic engine of the nation, leading the nation in job creation with more Texans working today than 46 other states have in population. All of that is correct, and it's why Texas does so well in the workforce category and the economy category. The statement does not address some of the weaknesses that we found, like the infrastructure. The statement also talks about uh, Texas's predictable regulations, but even there, there are some issues we found in the business friendliness category, which uh, which which measures state regulations. Uh, Texas came in 25th. 
Brian? You know, listen, and, and Scott, I, I love the series. Congrats on another successful year as well. Go to Texas a lot. There's some just amazing people there. A lot of diversity in a lot of places. So when I saw the rankings and I saw the number one in this, but the number 50 in that, you, you do understand it's kind of hard to square because these issues that you bring up, they're pretty well known and a lot of people choose to live elsewhere. But yet a lot of people, like the family you highlighted, is choosing to still go there. It sounds like despite that, it's not necessarily scaring people away. Well, it's, I don't think it's hard to square at all, Brian. Um, you know, we, we look at 10 different categories of competitiveness. It's not a simple thing. North Carolina, America's top state for business this year, came in 38th for life, health, and inclusion. Uh, so so you, can, you, can, you can win, so to speak, uh, but also fail in certain areas. There's no such thing in the 16 years we've been doing this as a perfect state. Yeah, and I know you got your secret sauce, okay? You're not going to give us the formula for Coca-Cola. We get it. But over the years, how have or have some of these weightings evolved? Uh, well, and, and I can, it's not a secret sauce as far as that's concerned, Brian, and we have the, the methodology at topstates.cnbc.com. Uh, we, what we do is, the first thing we do every year is we go through every state's economic development marketing pitch, and we see what they're pitching. And so you tally that up. If you have, you know, 100 mentions of workforce and only 20 mentions of access to capital, well, workforce is going to carry more weight in the study, and that's how we do it every year. Uh, we have the same 10 categories of competitiveness, um, almost exactly the same since we started this in 2007, but the weightings do change. The metrics occasionally change uh, if different data is not available. Uh, but the idea is to try and grade the states on their own report cards. Honestly, I don't think Texas was the biggest surprise. My phone blew up when the list came out because you moved New Jersey up. New Jersey for a little bit of a win. Hard to believe. <laughs> Scott, thank you. New Jersey, America's most improved state, yeah. Most improved state. You go, New Jersey. Still got problems, but you're improving on them. Scott Cohn, great stuff as always. Thank you. Thank All right, let's turn now to there's an election next year you might have heard about. And House Republicans are introducing a new bill, the American Confidence in Elections Act, aimed at boosting election integrity. One issue at the forefront, removing foreign money from American elections. While non-U.S. citizens are not able to vote or donate to political campaigns, a significant number allegedly used a loophole allowing, allowing them to give to, you know, 50C4 organizations. Those are tax-exempt groups and then can give directly to super PACs and other causes. So you're overseas, you give to the 501C4, then they give it to super PACs and causes. Now, of course, over the past few years, both parties have claimed financial interference by foreign nationals in U.S. elections. In this case, Republicans alleging Swiss billionaire Hans Org Visas donated hundreds of millions into American politics. And tax filings show a nonprofit owned by Vis gave over $70 million to a progressive organization or organizations two years ago. So how can that be fixed? Joining us now is the bill's sponsor, Wisconsin, Congressman Brian Stile from Wisconsin's great first district all the way down there in Kenosha to Janesville. Congressman Stile, thank you for joining us. You understand there's going to be people who are watching this show who may be politically left who are saying, wait a minute. We thought all the foreign money was supposed to be on the right. 
This is all about an opportunity to build Americans' confidence in their elections, and foreign nationals already are prohibited from contributing directly to candidates running for federal office. But as you identified and as we found, there's a loophole to that. And what we see are foreign national billionaires providing funds to 501c4 tax-exempt organizations in the United States, which then simply launder the money and pass them off to super PACs to run political ads. We think this is a loophole that should be closed, and in doing so, I think we'll further enhance the integrity of our elections here in the United States. So it sounds like, because, you know, you're going to have finger-pointing on both sides saying, well, it's all the Republicans, all the Democrats. Sounds like this is a bill that would equally benefit, potentially, both parties. Be good for everybody. It, yeah, th- this, this portion of the legislation, right, is so important because it's not partisan in nature. What this is doing is just simply good governance, making sure that we close loopholes and prevent foreign interference in our elections. We have plenty of evidence that individuals are taking advantage of this loophole, bringing in money from outside the United States, from foreign nationals, funneling it through tax-exempt entities, and then moving that through super PACs and then influencing U.S. elections. Well, because we discovered the, the loophole, Let's work together to close it. There's no reason that this loophole should exist. We should all agree, Democrats or Republicans, that we should not allow foreign money to come into the United States to directly impact our U.S. elections. How hard would it be to block the money? I mean, is it is as effective as just sort of a switch on a computer screen? How do you do it? Well, there's obviously a little bit of a challenge here in the disclosure requirements as it relates uh, to giving into 501c4 entities. But I think it's actually pretty straightforward if we close this loophole and simply say any 501c4 that's received foreign funds over the last four years are prohibited from transferring money to super PACs in the United States that impact elections, we've done the job. Then simply enforcing that requirement. But the tracking of that is not as challenging as it is you might think offhand. And I'm confident that if we close this loophole, we will be able to actually plug that spigot of money coming into the United States from foreign nationals. Yeah, Congressman Brian Stiles, sounds like a good law and a good rule potentially for all of Americans, although I can still see some political fighting because that's what we do. Congressman, thank you. Have a great night. All right, on deck, we're going to celebrate one of America's fastest growing national holidays where the entire family gathers around the hearth to shop. So what exactly is the deal with Amazon Prime? We're going to dive in. All right, very quick bonus. Tomorrow's news tonight. Bloomberg just reporting the FTC is leaning toward appealing a federal judge's ruling from earlier today, allowing Microsoft's $69 billion buyout of Activision Blizzard. As you might imagine, Activision Blizzard down a little bit on that. Microsoft up just a touch again, just happening now. All right. You know this. You say the word sale, and to a lot of people, something very strange happens. They get excited. Their eyes widen. And guess what? Their wallets open. It's almost an American tradition, like Black Friday, for example, where people literally sometimes are willing to trample each other to save a couple of bucks. But, of course, that's when we did stuff in person, the good old days. And now there's Prime Day, where Amazon tries to sell us even more stuff. And guess what? Apparently, it works. But why? Joining us now to dive into the psychology of the sale is president and CEO of advertising platform Mountain, Mr. Mark Douglas. I'm sure, Mark, there are 
some spectacular deals on Amazon Prime Day. It's the only two days of the year I don't shop on Amazon just, to, you know, because I hate Cyber Monday and all that other stuff. But why, yeah. in, why, why in general does that word, the concept, motivate us like it does? Well, the, I think the sale unlocks all that discretionary spending, that thing you wanted but felt guilty about buying. Well, now you can get it on sale. And I think it turns out Americans and people worldwide have a lot of stuff they want, but, you know, feel guilty about buying. And I think that's what it really appeals to. And it works. It works really effectively. But it's so interesting because Amazon was always kind of the place where it was like, you're, I don't want to say everyday low prices. I think somebody else might have that trademark. But you get the concept, right, that Amazon kind of was always trying to pretend or whatever to be the lower cost provider. And yet they have a sale, which said, you know what that says to me, Mark, it says to me the other 354 days or whatever, 64, whatever, how many days there are in a year, I, maybe I'm not getting a good deal. Well, you know, the companies, I think they tear their customers. There's the customer that needs something right now. And you have to pay a little bit more. And if you don't need it right now, you can wait a few months, some cases a few weeks, um, then they can get those customers too. And I think actually a lot of companies think about that very specifically. And then, you know, advertising and, you know, press releases and all that, they, they kind of tell the consumer, Now's the time. Now yeah. get ready. It's it's about to happen. And and it unlocks all that spending and it works really effectively. So everyone's getting the right price for the moment in time that they want to buy that product. And yeah, I know Amazon, I don't need to subscribe and save to socks. Okay. That said, Mark, a lot of small yeah. business owners, maybe some retailers watching CNBC, watching last call right now. What can other companies, big or small, learn? Yeah. from Amazon and this prime day sensation, which is like taking on a whole life of its own. Well, you, I mean, you have to have a lot of products to, to, to have a sale day. If you, I, it, the worst is when it's one product and you're like, wait, I spent 30% more for that six weeks ago. I mean, that's the absolute worst. And so if you have a lot of products, then then sale days and sale moments. I mean, we had a company that was built entirely on sales, right? That unfortunately went out of business recently, Bed Bath & Beyond. I mean, everyone just waited for the sale to get texted yeah. to 20% mm -hmm. off. And when they stopped sending out that text message because the president company thought that was a good idea, it turned out to be a really bad idea. Yeah, it was Bed Bath & Be Gone, apparently. <laughs> Mark, Mark Douglas, appreciate it. Thank you for your insight as always, folks. Really appreciate you watching or listening to Last Call, maybe the podcast. We'll see you tomorrow night. Shark Tank is next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.